if we create a neural network, we can sort of simulate mouse level of complexity in, in terms of the structure of a mouse's brain. Okay. I think with by well, in, certainly in the 2020s, we're going to get to human level complexity. Um, and then by 2040, potentially, we can simulate the combined brain power of the whole of the population on the planet. That's kind of how quickly things are advancing at the moment. Good grief. Welcome to Nick Lansley's Innovation Lab. Hello, welcome back to Innovation Lab. In this episode, a subject dear to my heart, robotics. Robots have, over the past years, worked to perform complicated, yet repetitive, mundane, sometimes even dangerous tasks in factories, or of course as play toys. But as computer processing power continues to grow and extras such as sensors become cheap thanks to mobile phones, the potential for robots to do much more is becoming a reality. Using sensors, robots can perceive and measure the world around them and use this richer set of inputs to do interesting things. Luke Hickton is a robotics specialist. He's working on a project to bring the power of robotics within easy reach of curious programmers. Luke is also studying to become a doctor of philosophy in the field of human and robot relations. Hmm, what better person to ask about the future and indeed dilemmas that robotics bring to the human race? But first, Wikipedia, what is a robot? A robot is a mechanical or virtual artificial agent, usually an electromechanical machine that is guided by a computer program or electronic circuitry. Robots can be autonomous or semi-autonomous and range from humanoids such as Honda's advanced step in innovative mobility, ASIMO, to industrial robots, medical operating robots, patent assist robots, dog therapy robots, collectively programmed swarm robots. UAV drones such as General Atomic's MQ-1 Predator, and even microscopic nanorobots, by mimicking a lifelike appearance or automating movements, a robot may convey a sense of intelligence or thought of its own. Okay, and joining me down the line from uh, live from Welling Garden City is uh, Luke Hickton. Hello, Luke. Hi, Nick. Uh, now, Luke, I've got you on the line because uh, I know that you've become, at least for me, a, a guru on robotics. You're actually studying a PhD <laughs> on it, aren't you? Well, just about to start, yeah. Excellent. Tell me more about that. Um, well, so in my PhD, I'm looking at the relationship between um, robots and humans at an emotional level. So potentially how robots can manipulate emotional responses in humans to help them accomplish their tasks. And similarly, how they can react to emotions in humans to, again, further their objectives. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, for one, salute our future digital overlords, obviously. Um, is, is this all about the kind of human-computer interaction, the latest generation? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it's about how robots um, can interact with, with humans and engage with them. Great stuff. And, and, and to what end? Is it, is it all about having humans a bit more comfortable, having, having robots around them? I think that's one facet of it. I think it's just a really interesting thing to explore. And I guess something that I've been interested in ever since, you know, the, the short circuit films um, in the 1980s. Oh, yes, um, I remember those. <laughs> so I remember being particularly traumatised by the, the second one. It interested me back then, the fact that there's actually quite a violent scene in short circuit where um, the robot gets beaten up. And as a child, I was absolutely traumatised by this, um, oh, okay. even though it was a PG film. And it really interested me, sort of looking back on that, that the kind of violence was deemed 
okay because it was against a robot, even though the premise was that the robots had become self-aware and um, and so on and so forth. And it made me think about, well, in the future, you know, when artificial intelligence develops and potentially machines do become sentient, what is that relationship going to look like? And I guess this is kind of starting off at the very beginning of that, just exploring the relationship between artificial life and, and human beings. Okay, um, sentience is an interesting one. So this is that moment in time when a digital life form, and I'm beginning to say life form because the 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 idea of sentience is a is a weird one. It's like if I decide to shut down the computer, and it's sentient, it, am I killing it or or forcing it in something or other? Is 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 that the sort of thing you're looking at? Is there like a philosophical view to take on this? In terms of the stuff that I'm looking at, it's probably much more basic and much more immediate. I think in in terms of sentience, that's a really interesting question. Because I guess when most people think of artificial intelligence, they probably think of expert systems and, you know, if-then statements. So, I mean, you might have heard of the, the Chinese room example, whereby it's trying to describe that the traditional symbolic view of artificial intelligence doesn't really embody what intelligence is so if you imagine the the chinese room in which somebody is in a room with um, a series of rules which tells them how to translate between english and and say another and chinese the idea is that that person isn't necessarily doing anything intelligent although to the outside world it would seem that there is an intelligent process going on there and certainly with symbolic ai like um, expert systems and so on it's more about modeling behaviors so to the outside world, that system looks intelligent, but then internally it's just a series of very, very complicated rules. I think that model of AI takes you so far, but then when you start looking at models like um, neural networks that simulate the functions of the brain, it's like kind of any simulation. If you imagine um, that you can use a simulator to simulate an engine or something, when you're looking at a simulation of something that is a very abstract concept like intelligence, if you can build an accurate enough simulator of something, then the intelligence does actually manifest itself and it is very real and it is potentially potentially sentient. And at that one that... thing, at that one task, or at that one model, perhaps? Well, I think that's, that's again, an interesting question. So with neural network, you would typically... Um, train it to accomplish one specific task. But then at the moment, we're only able to, you know, to do very, very, very basic things. But um, obviously with the exponential increase in in technology, very, very quickly, we're going to get to, I think at the moment we can, if we created a neural network, we can sort of simulate mouse level of complexity in, in terms of the structure of a mouse's brain. Okay. I think with, by, well, in, certainly in the 2020s, we're going to get to human level complexity. Um, and then by 2040, potentially, we can simulate the combined brain power of the whole of the population on the planet. That's kind of how quickly things are advancing at the moment. Good grief. OK, so, uh, so I remember um, learning neural networks to solve noughts and crosses, for example, where it learns and is very bad at playing noughts and crosses and then it improves to the point where I, it's impossible for me to win, which is always great fun and interesting. Yeah. Um, and what you're saying is is that, is that when you've got Moore's law in effect, 
Yeah. It's almost Moore's Law sounding too slow in what you're saying, if you're, if you're talking about the time scales that you are talking about. Well, I mean, I guess going back to Kurzweil, he talks about the concept of the, the being a singularity. So going back to, to Moore's Law and with the rate of, uh, well, I think with Moore's Law, it's the number of transistors on a, on a chip, isn't it? But if you yes. generalise that into technology, that um, the speed of technology is doubling every two years, that the rate of, the rate of change of technology is doubling every two years, then you get this kind of very, this exponential curve. When you're kind of just starting out, that curve doesn't seem to be that there's much happening there. And then you get to a point which is which is the knee of the curve, where all of a sudden that rate of change starts becoming you know, almost vertical. Okay, yeah. And according to Kurzweil, we're sort of almost at that stage whereby as soon as you have machines that are smart enough and aware enough to begin developing other machines, that um, rate of acceleration just skyrockets. And, you know, potentially we're looking at that in, in you know, the, the next one or two decades. Wow, that's absolutely remarkable. There is um, a, a challenge, isn't there, I suppose, where if you're going to have all the, the, the knowledge of the world um, linked to all the intelligence of neural networks, then you're going to... You, you could easily conclude that mankind is, is a, become an inefficient biological problem which needs to be done away with. Is, is that, an, is that, I know it's like that's dystopian, but is there any utopian version of that where the robots think that, men, that the humans are perfectly fine and can stay around? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, actually. I, I guess it comes back to um, the relationship between humanity and intelligence, if there is one. You know, generally, if you acquire more intelligence, does that make you more human and more caring about things around you? Because I, I could probably suggest that the relationship we like to have with machines in the future, it could be like the relationship that we have with ants at the moment, that for the most part, we don't really relate to them on any level. You know, we typically let them go about their business and don't really have that much interest in them until you know, potentially they become a problem and they start scampering around the kitchen at which yes. time we might take some action. We may find that in the blink of an eye, we get to that relationship with machines where suddenly their level of intelligence is just so far beyond our understanding that there, there just isn't any relationship to be had. And, and I suppose there so, is... Sorry, that was a dystopian, I guess, in a way. That was dystopian. Maybe there isn't a utopian vision of this at all. Um, I think there is the, the challenge that humanity has where we are still very much animals and we've got our animal instincts that we try and override with our civilised speak um, about caring and stuff like that. Um, yeah. but if, you know, the, and you get heroes in any disaster, but you also get villains in any disaster as well. When you when you increase the amount of intelligence, it's what then happens, uh, what the intelligence is then used for, or whether the intelligence uses itself to make conclusions and therefore then take decisions on um, the best way forward. Uh, might be interesting as part of your PhD, actually, is working out if there is, in fact, if, if most paths are dystopian ones, uh, if there are any utopian paths, or if there are actually most of the paths are actually perfectly fine, just like we get on with the rest of nature, although you could argue that we don't really do a very good job at that either. Well, I think probably the most likely utopian path um, it is that we become part machine ourselves. Um, so certainly 
that's beginning to take place with the body hacking movement at the moment, that people are actually uh, starting to experiment with augmenting themselves digitally. And potentially, if we begin to augment ourselves and augment our intelligence, then that's probably the utopian vision, that we actually become one with the machines. It is one possible way that this this could pan out. Excellent. Is that utopian or dystopian? I'm I'm trying to work out which of the two is. Um, I'll tell you what, Luke, we're going to take a break now. Um, I'll invite listeners to actually have a good think about that whilst we're away. We'll be back in a moment, and I'll talk to you about... (laughs) <laughs> some of the more focused day-to-day and interesting stuff that you've been doing with robotics that I've, I've been witness to. Um, so stay on the line and uh, we'll be back after this. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. But you might not be. You might love it. Or not. Or yes or no. Well, whatever your enjoymenticity, why not let me know? Why not tap out an email to lab at lansley.com. That's L-A-B at L-A-N-S-L-E-Y dot com. Or comment on the show notes at www.lansley.com. Just one rule. Always be nice about the guests or I won't get any more. Lab at lansley.com. I'm waiting. Nick Lansley's Innovation Lab. Here are Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics. 1. A robot may not injure a human being, or, through an action, allow a human being to come to harm. 2. A robot must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. 3. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Welcome back. I'm Nick Lansley. This is Innovation Lab, and I'm talking with a robotic specialist, Luke Hickton. Luke, you're still on the line. I'm still here. Great stuff. So, Luke, where does Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics fit into all this? So, I think this is a really, really interesting one. So, um, for example, robots not being able to injure human beings, um, it's very, very difficult to to do that it becomes almost paradoxical so for example if a human's attacking another human being then you know potentially what should it do interestingly with self-driving cars we're going to very rapidly get into this kind of scenario that um a robot will in this case a car will probably take action to reduce the risk of injury to the occupants and that sounds reasonable but then obviously in taking that action, it might be making decisions that you know, will cause harm to pedestrians or cause harm to the occupants of the other vehicle. And then potentially, you know, you're going to get into this robotic arms race situation whereby the robots are going to be developed in order to maximise the probability of kind of protecting the, the people who, who own them. Yes, I think you're right, Luke. The, the whole challenge of this is, is that a robot is likely to obey its master uh, and, and protect his master because that might be one of the reasons why it was purchased in the first place. So a car that will allow you to survive crashes, maybe a car that takes everybody else out and sacrifices as many people as it can in order to make that happen. It's a conflict of interests which is represented yeah, yeah. today. If, if we suddenly find ourselves, our cars out of control for any reason, um, what, what goes through our minds? We're trying to save ourselves but if, we're, if the car is heading towards pedestrians um, we've got to try and find a path around them, but do it, there might be a big, a large clump of pedestrians and a thinned out clump, and maybe the only way is to try and, is to kill as few people as possible, but kill. Um, I think that's absolutely right. That the robot, 
you know, it's a product like anything else with a series of features. And generally, the person that's investing in that product um, is going to assume that it's going to be acting on according to their best interests. Yes. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Then, As also, you would protect, be protecting your family in the car. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Abs- and I think it's also worth looking at the, the evaluation question as well around that. The working out, well, being able to to know that given an, a certain action, being absolutely sure what the outcome is going to be, because there is a certain amount of, um, you know, a kind of chaos factor that if you do something, you, you can't predict accurately, um, you know, whether that's going to hurt somebody else or if that is going to hurt somebody else, whether they would survive it versus doing something else which could... Um, it cause a negative consequence to to another person. Yeah. So it's absolutely impossible from that point of view. No, that's fascinating. It, it, it's it, yes, it's 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 like any action we take. Every action that we take, however big or small, has its own consequences. I think until machines become absolutely omnipotent, any uh, robot that tried to um, implement Asimov's free laws would just sit and quiver in a room because it wouldn't be able to confidently perform any action. Yeah. Now, uh, let's uh, let's go from the far future, dystopian or otherwise, to the near future. What is it that you're up to currently in, in your role, in your field of robotics? Well, when I studied my an original degree, um, which finished at around about 2003, I was really disappointed at the time. Although I studied artificial intelligence, most of the work that we did with robotics then had to be simulate, uh, simulated. The robots that were available at the time tended to be very expensive, didn't have very much in terms of capability. Now a lot has changed with the you know advent of cheap microcontrollers um, like Arduino and the ability to use 3D printing to manufacture things very, very quickly, where all of a sudden it's actually possible to, to build a robot fairly cheaply that's capable of doing quite a lot of stuff and becomes a really interesting robotics platform. So the main piece of work that I'm looking at at the moment is to create a design that can be 3D printed easily, that has the code for the microcontroller and um, a way to interface it via an Android or an iOS app, to very quickly get people from the, away from kind of all the complicated maths and all of the kind of not terribly interesting stuff that is required in order to get a robot to move its legs around and into the much more interesting stuff about how to manage different behaviours and how to uh, manage interaction with, with the real world. And that's the work that I'm doing at the moment, which is called ScamperBots, around creating legged robotics platforms that people can use to, to experiment with. Okay, so, so uh, let, me, let me just summarise what you've said. So you've created these robots that, uh, they, get, they look like, Shall we say spiders or crabs? They're kind of they scamper because they've got several legs. Yeah, hexabots. Yeah, hexabots. They've got six legs. There, there are motors and servos and sensors that allow the scamper bot to scamper around. And what you've done is you you've done the low low level coding already, so that people can come and use a scamper bot and just do some high level stuff. Is that is that what is that what? Have I got that right? Yeah, sure. That's that's the aim. That's what we're we're working towards. I think the the reason I wanted to concentrate on legged robots rather than sort of robots with wheels and things is just a kind of anthropomorphic element, really. Having something that has legs that moves around, people seem to respond to it differently. They respond to it almost like um, it, it's an animal. 
And also, the robot itself can be much more expressive in terms of the way that it moves, and it can show a much more diverse range of behaviours. That again is really interesting to see how you know people interact with it. So, for example, with one of the early designs, it had um, a simple noise sensor in there, and if you made a loud sound, the robot would sort of back away and cower and sort of tremble a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the reaction. That, that that provokes was really interesting that people actually wanted to engage with it and start and look after it and avoid doing that behavior again because they might upset the robot um <laughs> and i think it's those kind of interactions that are, are really quite interesting interesting stuff luke and you're at the start of all this fantastic <laughs> <laughs> um luke it's been so fa it's been fantastic conversation really really stimulating and thanks so much uh, for spending time to come and talk to me on the podcast it's an absolute pleasure thank you nick okay pleasure luke speak to you soon Cheers, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.